0: hello this is rabbi daniel Karopkin. welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by maimonides or rambam called more or guide for the perplexed this text has been studied for centuries by great scholars jewish and non-jewish alike it seeks to reconcile aristotelian and neoplatonic philosophy with the torah of our people and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. Hi there, Uh, this is Danielle Koropkin speaking to you uh, from Thornhill, Ontario in Canada. For webyeshiva.org, we are studying a very important work called Moreh Nebuchim, Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed. We've been doing this for quite some time and uh, we are now in section two of the Moreh Nevuchim*. We are going to do chapter 16 today and God willing, we'll also be able to get into a large portion of chapter 17 as well. We are at a point in Moreh Nevuchim* where the Rambam has, as is his uh, norm, to present all of the opposing ideas that may conflict with the Torah, but which the Rambam has a great amount of respect for. And in particular, the Rambam has been discussing the creation narrative as it appears in the Torah, uh, in that he is of uh, firm conviction that the creation narrative describes a creatio ex nihilo, a creation from nothing, yesh me ayin, as we say in Hebrew. And that this is a uh, this poses a, a challenge, in that his great philosophical teacher Aristotle had believed in that in the opposite of that he had believed in what was what we would call an eternal existence an eternal universe that there was no point of creation. Aristotle, according to the Rambam, uh, had presented several arguments for this, which we're going to revisit in chapter 17. Uh, In chapter 15, the last chapter that we studied together, the Rambam had informed us that even Aristotle himself was not entirely convinced that he had actually proven uh, that the world has eternally existed. Um, And that was part of the Rambam's uh, method of eroding this very, very popular theory within philosophical circles that the world was never created, but has rather eternally existed. In chapter 16, which is a relatively short chapter, the Rambam is now going to begin his own counter arguments based on philosophical um, uh, argumentation to demonstrate that the argument for creation is a stronger philosophical argument than the argument that Aristotle had presented for an eternal universe. And so before I go any further, let me share um, the uh, the handout that you can always download. This handout is available on the Facebook group, Shi'ur in Morena Vuchim, which everyone has access to. And it is also available on the course description for today's Shi'ur uh, on webyeshiva.org. And in their very, very rich website full of Torah content, you can find our class. So just to give you a brief outline of what the Rambam is stating in chapter 16. The first point he wants to make is that uh, this is what I, Maimonides, believe in contradistinction to what I've been presenting to you in the last several chapters, as far as what Aristotle believes. The first thing he says, I reject the Mutakalaman's proofs for creation, which were detailed in section one of Maurenevuchim, chapter 74. Um, We gave a full uh, lengthy exposition when we studied chapter 74 together You can always go back to the recordings of this uh, of this class and go back to chapter 74. But in brief, the Rambam had presented the arguments of the Kalam, uh, which is a a competing philosophical system that the Rambam had rejected because uh, the Kalamists had rejected Aristotle's conception of matter and form and the makeup of the entire universe, the stuff that the universe is made of. But the Kalamists had also argued for creation using their own philosophical proofs, counter Aristotle. And the Rambam says, while you might think that the, the Kalimun, these Kalamists and I are kindred spirits because we both subscribe to creation, I reject their arguments for creation. Now, just for us to, to review, just in very um, abbreviated form, let's go over the seven proofs that the Kalamists had brought for the creation narrative. Um, The first thing that the Kalamis had argued was when we extrapolate from individual organisms, we see that individual organisms in our world evolve from simple structures to complex structures. The same occurred with all of creation that there was an evolutionary process from uh, a very, very simple um, uh, unitary form or, or piece of something that, branched out and became all of the multitudinous and very diverse creation and very advanced and complex creation that we see today. That was the first argument. You know, it's funny because when we go over this, as we mentioned in chapter 74 and in the chapters regarding the Kalamists, many of their arguments actually are more, uh, uh, have more survived the test of time more than many of the Aristotelian models. This would be one example because we believe uh, science has proven that there is uh, something, an event in history called the Big Bang, which happened over 13 billion years ago. And that's very consistent with the way that the Moon present this evolutionary process of development from simple to complex. Number two, it is impossible for an infinite chain of causation of finite organisms to exist. And that's essentially what you would be arguing for if you believe in an eternal creation. One of the uh, logical impossibilities in philosophy is to have an infinite chain of finite objects. Number three, atoms are static uniform substances. The fact that some aggregate and some separate proves that there is a creator who structured them at such, as such at some point in time. And this uh, is a subscription, of course, to what the Kalamists uh, themselves believed, that the universe is comprised of atoms. And the fact that certain atoms form in one way and certain atoms form in another way, and some separate and some aggregate, proves that there must be some sentient being that is in charge of this uh, very disparate method of how atoms uh, behave, even though the Kalamist belief was that atoms are static and uniform. There's no difference between one atom and another. So of course, they got that wrong based on our knowledge of modern science and and, uh, uh, atomic theory and so forth. Argument number four, if accidents in atoms are constantly recreated, meaning the, the attributes that each atom possesses that makes them unique from each other, if those attributes are constantly being recreated, so must the atoms themselves be constantly being recreated. Since you cannot have an infinite succession of finite items, there must have been a first atom or set of atoms ergo creation. Okay, and we won't go into that any, any further, but that's argument number four. Number, f- number five is the argument of particularization. Since any existence could have been different from what it currently is, the fact that it is one way and not the other way is proof of a sentient and willful creator. And argument number six, is what we call the special case of particularization. Since any existence could have just as easily not existed as much as it could have existed, the fact that it exists is proof of a sentient and willful creator. In other words, there must be a deity, a being, who is in charge of bringing all things into existence since things could have easily just as, just as easily have not existed. And by the way, that argument um, does hold water even, arguably, even in the modern world, even in the 21st century even after you've already explained how a big bang scientifically came to be, you would still be faced with the, um, with the difficult question to answer, why does anything exist? And why does it need to exist? And that question is not so easily answered, even though there are very, some very, very uh, smart thinkers like Stephen Hawking uh, who try to answer this question, but I, I find that their answers are lacking. And finally, number seven is it is impossible for an infinite number of souls to exist concurrently. If the world were eternal, then it would contain an eternal number of immortal souls existing concurrently. So those, even though the Rambam does not quote these seven proofs that were featured in chapter 74, I thought it would be helpful to just review them. Um, If you wanna be able to delve into them more deeply, please just go back to chapter 74 in section one. And then the Rambam writes um, a, a point of argumentation. He says, when you encounter sophistical arguments, which in Hebrew was translated as hata meaning sophistry is a method of argumentation which was known even in ancient Greece. It was almost like a form of argumentation that after think, looking at it carefully, you discover that it's flawed. In other words, at face value, it comes across as very appealing and very sophisticated, but once you, when you um, subject it to scrutiny, it, it starts to break down. So when you encounter such sophistical arguments that the mutakalimun have presented, it is best to immediately reject them. Why? Because weak arguments will only weaken one's resolve to arrive at the real solution. When you read something which attempts to prove something, but the arguments are weak, then even though there may be a real solution to your quest you become weary because you've already encountered weaker arguments that will sort of deflate your attempt to arrive at truth each one of the arguments of the mutakalimun were refuted and i will do the same with aristotle's proof for an eternal universe and furthermore all of aristotle's proofs that creation is impossible will also be shown to be incorrect and that's what the rambam is going to set out to do in the next couple of chapters when number three, when presented with conflicting arguments, both of which possess strengths and weaknesses, it is, to, it is best to rely upon the authority of prophecy to be the arbiter of truth. Even philosophers acknowledge the, so first before we get into the next sentence, the Rambam here does acknowledge that when you are stuck intellectually and you don't have a way out of solving a conundrum using your intellect alone, because perhaps there are two equally cogent pathways in front of you. You come to a crossroads intellectually, and you can either go down the Aristotelian path of an eternal universe, or you can go down the biblical path of creation. And both uh, both arguments have equally intellectually appealing aspects to them and they also both have intellectually um, unappealing aspects to them in other words there are problems with the uh, theory of an eternal universe there are also philosophical problems with the theory of creation and therefore when you're stuck in that way and you don't know which path to take that's when you should rely on the authority of prophecy why because prophecy is helpful to guide you in places where your mind simply doesn't know which way to go. And he says, to even strengthen that or bolster that, this is not me, the Rambam, speaking as a Jew, as a man of religion. Even philosophers acknowledge the possibility of prophecy to provide insight into matters which the human mind cannot fathom on its own. Now, what the Rambam is referring to here is that even though there were secular philosophers who were not at all part of monotheistic faith going back to the great Greek philosophers before the common era, these people were not believers in the the God of the Bible, but they did believe in a sort of prophecy that Aristotle describes, that a person can have a Eureka moment as it were, uh, which, which many philosophers believed was actually an emanation of knowledge that comes from the heavens and is implanted into the mind of a person because when a person strives for intellectual excellence, there is a point where the human mind, as let's say a faculty or a muscle is no longer able to go beyond that point, but striving to attach oneself to the source of all knowledge by going as far as you can up to, uh, upwards and upwards intellectually will allow you to connect with something called the active intellect, and that will endow you with ideas and principles that you would not have been able to arrive at on your own. The Rambam is going to discuss this idea of prophecy and how even it's a secular idea, not uh, not proprietary to to Torah. Uh, he'll discuss that when in the latter part of section two, when he gets into a, a fuller discussion of prophecy. But that's his point: is that I'm not speaking to you as a religious person who is appealing to your need to have emuna need to have faith in the Torah when I tell you that you should rely on prophecy, but you should rely on prophecy even if you are solely a secular philosopher as well. When you encounter a conundrum like this, where your intellect does not know which path of the two um, roads you should take when you arrive at the crossroads. Okay, and finally, number four, I will then demonstrate, says the Rambam in this very short chapter, that the arguments for creation are stronger than the arguments for an eternal universe and that there are even greater problems with the eternal universe model than the creation model. Uh, And that's how the Rambam ends chapter 16. I just, the only thing I'd like to add is to provide you with a quote from Rabbi Yehuda Halevi's Kuzari, wherein um, he says almost the exact same thing as the Rambam. Let's take a look. Now, you know, the Kuzari was written about I would guess around 60 to 70 years, maybe perhaps, maybe 50 to 60 years before the Morinavuchim. Whether or not the Rambam ever read the Kuzari will remain a mystery. The Rambam never makes direct reference to it uh, because there, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he was not familiar with it. It could mean that he didn't quote it because he didn't agree with certain parts of it. And we've talked about this idea before that the Rambam will sometimes pretend that something doesn't exist um, if he doesn't agree with it. But in the first essay of the Kuzari, beginning with um, paragraph 66, the Kuzari asked, how can the mind entertain an idea of creation if the opposite, that of an eternal universe, an eternal existence has already been proved? So them's fighting words that the Khazar king asks the rabbi. And the rabbi responds, when was this issue ever proved? God forbid the Torah never expects us to believe in things contradicted by evidence or proofs. The Torah does, however, recount miracles, that is, departures from nature such as new creations or transformations of things in order to teach about God's wisdom and his ability to act upon his will at a desired time, which indicates that the fact that miracles uh, have been performed in human uh, history is an indication that God can insert himself at a, at a given time into uh, human history and create new things. This is in itself evidence for a creator, which is one of the reasons why when we make kiddush Friday night and we say <inaudible> that uh, the Sabbath is a remembrance of the Exodus, what we really mean to say is that the Exodus was proof to the fact that the world had been created because if God can insert himself into human history, he could also bring about a creation from nothing at some given point in time. And then Rabbi Hudalebi continues by saying, it is not true that eternal existence, uh, that the eternal existence theory has already been proved. The question as to whether the universe was created or has always existed timelessly is a deep one. And there are valid logical arguments that can be made for either side. Therefore, the only thing that tips the scales in favor of creation is a tradition that dates from Adam to Noah and down to Moshe's prophecies. That is undoubtedly more reliable than logical arguments. And I put that last sentence in uh, in italics because I think that the Rambam would agree with everything that Rabbi Yehuda HaLevi said, and perhaps this last sentence perhaps may not be as appealing to the Rambam when he says that that which is passed down through misorah, through tradition, is undoubtedly more reliable than logical arguments. Uh, as a general rule, Rabbi Yehuda Halevi was not a proponent of relying on one's intellect, uh, in contradistinction to the Rambam, who felt that the intellect was the greatest arbiter of arriving at truth. So that's a side point, but I just wanted to point out that the uh, that this idea that there are equally cogent arguments to be made for eternal existence and for creation is something that the Rambam himself did not innovate. It existed among other great thinkers of the period as well. Let's just begin chapter 17, because I don't want to uh, just use this time just for chapter 16. Uh, In chapter 17, the Rambam really now provides us with his initial argumentation for creation. Um, And the first thing that he has to sort of point out is that the crux or the core of how we're going to deflect all of the Aristotelian arguments for any eternal universe is to observe that Aristotle's proofs were predicated on looking at the world as it is now and extrapolating from that, that the world could never have been created at a given time. Based on what we see now, we must conclude that what we see now has eternally existed um, uh, for all for all time eternally. And the Rambam wants to say, uh, it wants to use this chapter to basically build the following idea. And that is that you cannot always base what is right now to use that as your basis uh, for determining what was a year ago or a thousand years ago or a million years ago. Um, You cannot always extrapolate based on current facts to determine what was before and what will be also in the future. And this is the general principle therefore that he sets down. One cannot extrapolate about a created items past existence based on its current existence. Many changes occur within the items makeup in the course of its coming into being and reaching its perfected or mature state. And the example that the Rambam gives is that you'll note that in the gestation of any living creature, whether animal or human, it goes through a metamorphosis process. You start with a female egg, then the egg becomes fertilized and transforms or evolves into a fetus. And then the fetus in its state of gestation is very different from the fully mature uh, human being or animal when it comes out of the womb. The existence outside of the womb is very different from existence within the womb. And this is where he gets into the parable of the fetus. Um, And he starts off by discussing a situation where a child is born. And sadly, tragically, the mother of this child dies in childbirth. The child is then transported or is raised on a desert island by a group of men. And so the child is brought up. This is a, a male child. And he is brought up never having seen a woman his entire life. And he asks the question. Where do I come from? And when the people who are his mentors try to explain to him where he comes from, he is incredulous when he is told that he came from a female's womb. First of all, he's never, he has never seen a female. He doesn't even know what a female is. Um, but if I just wanted to direct you to page 295 in the Pines edition of Morene Vuchim. Let's take a look at that text for just a moment. Um, So thereupon, when the child says, where do I come from? The man or men to whom the question was put replied as follows. Every individual among us, this is right in the middle of the page. Every individual among us was generated in the belly of an individual belonging like us to our species, an individual who is female and has such and such a form. Um, Every individual among us was being small in body within the belly, was moved and fed there, and grew up little by little being alive until it reached such and such limit in size. Thereupon an opening was opened up for the fetus in the lower part of the female's body from which he issued and came forth. Thereupon he does not cease growing until he becomes such as you see that we are. So when the orphan child hears this, he must of necessity put the question Did every individual among us when he was little, contained within a belly but alive and moving and growing, did he eat, drink, breathe through the mouth and nose and produce excrements? And he has answered no. Thereupon, the child will undoubtedly hasten to set this down as a lie and will produce a demonstration that all these true statements are impossible, drawing inferences from perfect beings that have achieved stability. He will look at human beings that are within his purview. And he would say, how is it possible? You are suggesting that when I was a little being before I was born, I was inside a female's stomach, a a being that I had never seen of our species, and you're telling me that I didn't breathe, and I wasn't able to um, go to the washroom, go to the bathroom, and I did not function in the way that I function now. How's that possible? I couldn't survive if I couldn't breathe. You're telling me there's no air in there. How could I possibly survive even for a minute? So the Rambam's point is we would say the same to Aristotle regarding his argument for an eternal universe. Applying the rules of physics based on what exists now tells us nothing about what was at the time of creation. Just as when you look at a human being presently, you cannot extrapolate what state they were in when they were a fetus or what state they were in when they were an embryo or a zygote or an unfertilized egg. You can also not extrapolate by looking at the universe now and determine what was at a time that is very long ago at the time of creation. And point number five therefore is Aristotle's arguments are only effective against those who philosophically argue for creation based on scientific observations of what exists now. And what the Rambam is referring to is, if you note in chapter 16, I told you that I reject the arguments of the Mutakalimun. And we we set out uh, to review what we learned in chapter 74 of the first section, that the Mutakalimun actually use uh, philosophical argumentation based on what they understand exists right now using their atomic theory. And basically, they used arguments like you cannot, you cannot have um, a chain, an eternal chain of finite organisms. And you cannot, based on all of these philosophical arguments or scientific arguments, based on the science of today. And the Rambam's point is, one of the reasons why I disagree with the Mutakalimun is that they use the same methodology as Aristotle does. And they use that methodology to arrive at creation where Aristotle arrives at an eternal universe. But I disagree with both. Both are making the fundamental error of taking the laws of nature and the laws of physics as they are now and extrapolating and arriving at a conclusion. My point is that the world was drastically different at a given point of its gestation, at its point of creation. And therefore, you cannot look at today and say what was 100 years ago or 5,000 years ago or 5 million or 5 billion years ago. But then the Rambam says, well, what are we going to do about Aristotle's proofs for eternal existence? So we're going to basically take what we learned in chapter 14. If you recall, there were nine arguments that the Rambam had presented supporting the Aristotelian view of an eternal universe. The first four, he said, came directly from Aristotle and the subsequent arguments, the remaining five, uh, had come from either followers of Aristotle or were not directly addressing the issue of proving the eternal existence. But the first four were directly stated by Aristotle to argue for an eternal universe. So he says, using what I've just told you, we would take a look at those four arguments as follows. So if you look at, the, and for some strange reason, the Rambam puts them in a completely different order in our chapter, chapter 17, from the order that he had presented them in chapter 14. I think we'd have to go back to the original texts, the Aristotelian texts in order to ascertain why, but but we won't go into that right now, why the Rambam changes the order. Originally, Proof by first matter was argument number two, and here he puts it as argument number one. Originally, proof by motion was argument number one, and he places it here as number two. And same thing, the, uh, number three and four are also switched, and it's not clear why. But proof by first matter, we had said, was was as follows: first matter, which is matter that gives rise to all formed matter in our world, must be eternal. For if it were generated from something before it, it would need to be generated from other matter based on the laws of conservation of matter. Any matter that is generated from other matter must be endowed with form. Since otherwise, how would it be differentiated from the form from which it was generated? But this is a contradiction. Since first matter is assumed to not have form, we must conclude that first matter was never generated and as such has existed eternally. And the Rambam's response to that is, that was the argument, if you go back to chapter 14, which we did just several weeks ago, uh, you can go and review this in more detail where we sort of try to expand on that idea. But the Rambam's response to this argument of proof by first matter is that this argument is only valid if you assume first matter was created in the same way that all other matter was generated. But But once you submit that it was created ex nihilo, from absolute nothing by God, the logic that argues for its eternality no longer applies. And furthermore, uh, based on the fact that God created it from nothing, we may conclude uh, completely differently from Aristotle. Whereas Aristotle had argued that first matter has no form whatsoever, I would argue, says the Rabbam, that first matter does have form because it was created from nothing, not created from other matter. And therefore, all of the premises about what Aristotle calls first matter, the source of all the disparate things that exist in our world, are completely, uh, completely rejected by the Ramba. The second point that he makes is what he calls proof by motion. Aristotle had tried to prove from the fact that everything is moving right now, anything that is currently in motion must have an antecedent that was also in motion causing it to move. There cannot be an infinite series of causes and effects, even among non-physical things, We must thus thus conclude that the first motion, i.e. that thing which caused all other things to move, is eternal. The response to that, the Rambam says, that is true if the antecedent to current motion is other motion. But if it is God, this argument falls away. God can cause something to be spontaneously in motion even without something coming before it that is also in motion. So therefore, I reject that. I reject that, that argument for eternality as well. And number three, proof by possibility. This was a very abstract idea that any before something comes into existence, the possibility of its existence exists in time. Consequently, anything currently in motion must have been preceded by the possibility of its being in motion. Consequently, anything in motion presently must have been in motion existing within time before this moment going back infinitely. Stated more broadly, anything which currently exists within time must have been preceded in time by the possibility of its existence. And this is an Avicennan argument, basically post-Aristotelian. That possibility of existence must exist within some kind of reality, which is why existence must be eternal. Rambam had argued for an eternal existence because anything that we see currently existing must have been preceded by the possibility of its existence. That's what he calls the proof by. Possibility. And the response to that is when something is created from nothing, its possibility of existence does not need to precede its actual existence. And therefore, the Rambam rejects that as well. And finally, proof by heavenly matter. Recall that according to Aristotle, heavenly matter is unique to the heavens and is different from first matter that makes up the things of this world. All heavenly bodies are in a constant circular motion, which indicates that there is nothing that opposes their motion because if there was, then they would have to circumvent and move around those things that are opposite them. The only thing which causes material objects to cease to exist is when they are opposed by other objects. So since heavenly bodies have no opposition, they will exist eternally. Anything not subject to passing away is also not subject to generation. And therefore, since something will exist eternally, it must have also existed in the past eternally as well. And the response to that, says the Rambam, we agree that no contraries exist within heavenly matter, but it is still possible for them to seize existing, not because of any opposing forces within them, but because God wills them to cease existing. It's similarly possible for heavenly matter to have been created from nothing, because even though there was nothing that opposed their movement, they could have simply not existed a moment ago, and God spontaneously brought them into existence ex nihilo. You see very clearly in the Rambam's line of argumentation that the only way that he's able to deflect these Aristotelian arguments is by introducing a deity which produces things spontaneously from absolute nothing, from absolute nothingness. And once you subscribe to that possibility, all of the Aristotelian arguments fall by the wayside. This is in essence, the first half, I would say, of chapter 17. And since we've gone well over time by now, we're going to hold it here for today. And we will continue uh, uh, Bezrat Hashem, God willing, chapter 17 next week. Uh, wishing you all a great rest of the week. For those who are watching this live, have a Chag Purim Sameach, um, and we will see you soon. Take care now.